Company Watch Financial Analytics. Hello and welcome to the Company Watch Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Joe Kettner, CEO of Company Watch, and I'm joined by Nick Hood, Financial and Commercial Risk Analyst, and my colleague Adam Stones, a data scientist at Company Watch. Welcome, Nick, and welcome, Adam. Hello. Hi, Joe. We're recording today's episode at lunchtime on Friday, the 26th of March. Um, this week, we are letting Nick and Adam unleash their not-so-inner geeky selves um, in terms of data. Um, I think we've mentioned on the podcast before that the, the governments announced that they will publish details of who has claimed under the coronavirus job retention scheme, CJRS or furlough as in com- commonly known, um, from December 2020 until the scheme ends, which is now September 2021. So we've looked at the first chance of data a bit. It's quite difficult to work with, but I think even though there, there are perhaps limited conclusions you can draw, it's really worth looking at that in a bit more detail in the round with some um, jobs figures that we've had over the course of the week in terms of unemployment um, and so on. So we'll we'll that's a meat of today's podcast. Um, but we also did want to pick up on inflation figures that were out this week and also some updates on administration and um, prepack and, and so on. So shall we start jumping into inflation, Nick? What are our we headlines here? Certainly shall. We certainly shall. Inflation numbers out for February. Um, and uh, rather against expectations, the headline inflation rate has dropped from 0.7% to 0.4%, uh, which I suppose is good news, unless you're the Bank of England trying to get to your 2% uh, uh, <laughs> target. Um, but I actually wanted to drill down a bit below that and hint at something that I think might be going on that's a little less pleasant than a drop mm-hmm. in inflation. Um, So if we take the theory that uh, a drop in inflation suggests there's less scope for companies to raise prices, because one assumes the market won't accept that, if you look more closely at the the numbers, the input prices for fuel and materials going into the manufacturing sector of the economy rose by 2.6% in February. Now, whether that is Brexit or whether it is um, ongoing effects of the pandemic, nonetheless, they went up by 2.6%. I also then, being of of a lateral mind, um, uh, remembered that the uh, employment numbers that were um, released earlier in the week mentioned that uh, wage inflation was running at 3.9%. Now, there's a caveat here in terms of what that means, because we think that is to do with lower paid workers losing jobs and therefore being out of the figures rather than actually wages increasing in absolute terms. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I think I think that's the caveat. Uh, the answer is that nobody quite knows. Okay. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, um, I think it's highly that's unlikely that... Significant that, though, isn't it? it? It is significant. It's highly unlikely that wages dropping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unless you happen to be an Uber driver. Yeah. Or that's another day, maybe. Or a deliver deliveroo um, courier. One other caveat, dare I I say it, it's also just to bear in mind that, again, you know, I don't want to hark back too much to the conversation we had on GDP, but this 0.4% inflation in February is comparing to February 2020, as was the 0.7% figure before it. I'm not sure about the other percentages that you made, whether they're annual comparisons or indeed. you know what the yeah. reference figure is. So it, it, Indeed. But I mean, uh, my worry is that if prices are effectively stable, 
and input prices are rising and wage uh, labor rates may be rising or may not be rate, uh, rising, somebody somewhere in the supply chain is having their profit squeezed. Because mm. if costs are rising and prices are fixed, somebody somewhere is paying. And my experience of many, many uh, uh, situation like this and many industries is that it'll the pain will be being felt at the bottom of the supply chain. Further down the supply chain you go, the greater the power of the of the end user of the of the goods that are produced or the services produced. So that's that is a a, a worry for me, and we'll see how that plays out over the next few months. Um, and I guess we've also got to add in potential impacts with the um, situation in Suez with the ever given the container boat. ship and um, blocking blocking transfer from, since the 24th, I think, of March. So we're kind of three or four days in and it's weeks we're talking about. Yes. I saw six weeks. Yeah, Gosh. this is the situation where where you dragged me back to my childhood, Joe, because you sent me a message about about Suez, and it was like being back with um, Anthony Eden and the Suez Crisis <laughs> all over again. Oh, gosh, when I was a kid. Um, so, uh, so, so indeed, I mean that is bound to have an impact um, on prices and trade in general. I mean the numbers mm. are mind blowing. The amount of uh, stuff that is stuck in the approaches either side of the, of the Suez Canal. And we're already in, in terms of shipping costs, we're already in a position where I think since November prices have, have tripled and over the course of the year they've quadrupled. So we're already at very high levels of, of costs and this is only going to add more costs. Um, Indeed. Also that. on that point, sorry, worth, worth mentioning the sort of outlook for inflation going forward. So in the MPC, the Monetary Policy Committee uh, summary in minutes from the 18th of March, um, they just talk about we should expect in the in the next few months inflation to go back up towards the target of 2%, reversing out or as the as the early 2020 uh, deep, sharp decrease in oil. Remember, it went negative yeah. at some yeah. point. Actually, as that sort of as that sort of gets reversed out, we should expect inflation in the round to return to more normal or their target figure of two percent. But after that, it's almost anybody's guess. And at the moment, you know, looking forward in the medium term to 2022, 23, 24 election time, actually, inflation could be you know two percent plus or minus. 3% around that target. So, you know, we ha- we face a spectrum of uh, situations ranging from, you know, rampant economic growth where inflation maybe isn't such a big issue towards, you know, malignant inflation or indeed, you know, anticipated deflation and the the economic impact that that can have. Mm. And it has quite serious consequences for the public finances as well. You know, so um, a quarter of the gilt stock is index linked. So any 1% increase in inflation corresponds with a £6 billion increase in debt servicing costs. Wow. That, that's about one penny on, on income tax, just to put that into context. And if the Bank of England are then forced to start putting up their interest rates, that's a, a £10 billion. This is from an article I read in the Times this week, a £10 billion increase in debt servicing costs. So, you know, the, the threat of inflation is very real. And I guess that's why so many people are talking about it. Mm, and the impact that, and, you know, we, we talk about billions, you know, it, it, it's kind of normal these days. But actually, when you look at what, what the, the proposed tax um, rises and the tax raises, you, mm. as you say, this is a huge impact in terms yeah. of 
if we ever want to pay this back. You know, corporation tax hike in percentage terms from 18% to 25%, you know, huge Mm. increase, seven percentage points, 17 billion 17 billion pounds raised, you know, two thirds of that wiped out in the last six weeks by increased costs of debt servicing, 12 billion due to market forces. So, you know, it sounds like we're returning back to the sort of 2010 days where you heard so much about how we had to rationalise the public finances. Okay, right. I think time, as always, we're we're kind of running at the um, <laughs> running behind with, with time. So let's let's move on to. Well, actually, should we should we quickly um, just say something on the administration side? So we've got some pre-pack um, yeah, administration news, haven't we, Nick? On, on yes, um, the uh, pre-pack administration reforms were passed by Parliament this week uh, without any <clears throat> amendments. So we have the situation where pre-packs have either got to be approved by creditors. Um, which uh, clearly is, in most pre-packed situations, cannot happen, it takes too long, or they have to be approved by this so-called evaluator. And the insolvency profession, uh, perhaps talking its own book, is highly critical because there is no requirement for any professional qualification. So almost anybody who can happen to get professional indemnity insurance, Mm -hmm. which is the one requirement, could be an evaluator. The thing that worries me about this um, is that the evaluator is going to be paid by the potential buyer. And it's a huge conflict of interest yeah. because, you know, clearly, you know, who would bite the hand that's about to feed them? Mm. <clears throat> and and besides which, even if the evaluator was brave enough to say, no, there's no, I think the terminology in the Act is uh, a case made or a case not made. So a case not made, um, his decision is not binding on the administrator. They can find another, is that right? They can have as many... You can go many... evaluator shopping. <laughs> yeah. You can. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so so that, is, that has gone through and we'll see how that, uh, uh, how that works <clears throat> in practice. And the other thing, just to mention quickly, is that the last piece in the government support jigsaw, which, which, is, which is remade every three to four months, um, the winding up petition ban and the wrongful trading suspension were extended by um, uh, Bayes to the end of June, uh, two days ago. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, we were expecting that again, but it, it's been it's been confirmed. We've seen the Act of Parliament and everything. So, um, right. oh, the such instrument, I guess, would have, would have been. Um, okay, so shall we now talk about unemployment and unemployment. jobs or, in, or in general? In employment, whichever way, whichever you want to look at it. Um, I think the market was generally a wee bit surprised when the headline unemployment rate dropped uh, in February from five point one percent in January to five percent. I don't think anybody was expecting. Um, again, there's too much to talk about here, but uh, just again, the headlines, the reduction in the number of employed uh, people since pre-pandemic is 693,000, of whom 611,000 are under 35, that's 80 odd percent, yep. and two thirds are under 25. So that's other 400,000, I say, isn't it? That's 411,000, 400 and something, 23. Um, and uh, the uh, announcement from the ONS um, also highlighted that 41% of under 25s are now economically inactive. And that's 8.7 million people, of whom only 2.4 million are students. So there's an awful lot of, of, of labour oh. capacity sitting there not doing very much. They also highlighted in the release that the number of self-employed people 
had dropped during the pandemic by 660,000. So that's overall 693 employees and 660 self-employed. So I make that 1.35 million Mm. people who, uh, fewer people in work since Since before the pandemic. pandemic. And remember, on top of that, there are 5 million people on furlough. Mm -hmm. 5 million people. So you can see the continuing impact of lockdowns and the general damage on, on the economy. And the only thing just to uh, just flag very tangentially here is that these numbers are going to get skewed all over the place over the next two or three months, because at the end of this month, the reforms to the IR35 self-employed employed uh, taxation regime come in, and there's no doubting it will drive self-employed people into the employment numbers. So there'll be some movement again no doubt we will find it impossible to track so it's actually that. quite important then to to be to be wary of the figures that are coming out in terms of potential growth in employment yep. actually you do need to kind of consider the whole employment self-employment total figure yes yes you do, to, to just yes, you do. And, um, and at the risk of taking you off at a slight tangent um, this is not without financial repercussions as opposed to statistical repercussions because Again, being cynical, if you are self-employed and taxed under Schedule D, there are huge benefits in terms of being able to claim business expenses. What is happening as people are being pushed into employment by IR35 is upward pressure on pay rates. And I can give you a statistic. The Road Haulage Association estimates that the impact of IR35 will be to drive up the pay rates for agency drivers by 20%. Wow. I know. Wow. I know. And if that happens across the economy as a whole, which of course it won't because there are many sectors where there isn't flexibility on mm. labour rates, but um, uh, then there's going to be a real a real hike in labour costs. And I'm thinking about places like social care. A lot of, ag- lot of agency workers in yes. social care. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll keep an eye, keep an eye on those. Um, yeah, we, we those also pulled out of the ONS announcements some a sectorial breakdown of redundancy rates. Uh, They're quoting uh, the redundancy rate per thousand in in, in the main sectors of the the economy. And they're comparing the three months to January 21 with the three months to January 20 before the pandemic. And then in the middle of it, they're comparing the preceding quarter, which is August to October 2020. Mm-hmm. And generally, as you would expect, the redundancy rates are dropping because um, in, in because of the machinations of the, you know, the furlough scheme not being extended and then being extended. Yeah. The one that stands out is administrative and support services sector. So it's that, that huge medley of services that go into that go into so many parts of commerce. The uh, redundancy rate is going up there. It's, it's, gone quite, up from, it's quite dramatic, isn't it? The, um, yeah, the it's gone up from 24 um, redundancies per thousand to 34 mm. in, in the in latest that, those quarter. quarters. Mm. Yeah, and, and that makes it three and a half times the rate before the pandemic. Um, every other sector is going the other way, you know, construction or even, even mm. uh, hospitality. The redundancy rate is dropping mm. because I guess you know the decisions have been made and the redundancies have been made. But I, I suppose what it reflects is that the administrative and sports services sector is probably the um, the most easily cut 
part of a desperate company's budget, you know, cost savings, yeah. is you know, when you've reduced everything else, because bear in mind, marketing will be in there, for yeah, example. You know, the, the thing that no, no company in trouble should ever cut, but always does. Mm. On there, so I thought that was worth uh, that was that was worth mentioning. Yeah, indeed. What, what, what's really interesting is just you know you, you see the headline figure this week: zero point one percentage point four from January to February, and you know that almost gives you a sense of relief. But in reality, of course, you know when you dig dig down, you know to any extent at all, and you've obviously dug down quite a lot, you see you see just how negative the outlook is for employment going forward, and yeah. that's reflected in the forecasts by the OBR and the Bank of England, which yeah. are better than they were before the budget actually, but but still going to you know six and a half percent, two point two million by the end of the yeah. year, and that's and that is in the counted, you know, that is the, the stuff that we see. And actually, there's a whole load, as you say, yes, there's, there's, there's still a lot extra of other layer people underneath. Yeah, underneath. I mean. That's interesting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna grab onto that as a quite nice segue. This this idea that that headlines don't always tell the whole picture. And let's move on to the um, furlough data, the coronavirus job um, retention scheme data that was published by government, and was the subject of quite a, a tabloid style um, a series of headlines in the Guardian um, last very week. Very sensational. Very sensational. <laughs> I, uh, my favourite headline. Foreign royals and billionaire tactiles who got furlough. <laughs> you think, well, I'm sure they're looking forward to their two and a half thousand pounds per month. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think we were we were we were all a bit taken aback by the the way that this was presented. Of course, the, the job um, retention scheme was a, a kind of quick reaction, and we all know it was quite a blunt instrument. But it was designed to to keep jobs that would otherwise, from a business point of view, have been made redundant. And you know, I don't think there's any question that, that the, the, the the claimants did anything unlawful or fraudulent they were claiming in the within the rules of the, the scheme mm. because they are owners of businesses and it's I think you now it's a question of morality not just about doing something unlawful but you know the implication of these guardian articles are that just because you know a business is, is owned ultimately by very rich people they should you know they shouldn't use the furlough scheme and that certainly doesn't tie in with the sort of indiscriminate nature of that scheme. You know, the mm. idea is that if you are in a situation as a business where you would normally, for business reasons, make make an uh, employee uh, redundant, that you can use this scheme instead. And, and that's just simply what they've done. So Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that is that is true. So I think you know that 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 is the the kind of most um kind of lurid of the of the piece of space that we've seen. But Adam, you spent some time actually kind of looking into the um, to data. I mean, there are kind of a few points here, aren't there, in terms of, I suppose, starting off with data data quality. Um, Absolutely. You know, and perhaps. I think we, we should say right from the outset that, that you know, the, the release of this data by HMRC is definitely a, a, a step in the right direction. Absolutely. We know that HMRC have all sorts of data on employers. And, and I think that, you know, the more of that that we can get, you know, within, within the constraints of, of uh, privacy, the more of that that we can get our hands on, the better. Um, but also not only the release of data, but also the quality of data is, is very important. And in particular, you know, I think actually when this data was first released back in January, it was just simply a list of names. And one of one of the big challenges that we at Company Watch would face with with a list of names is that somehow we've got to we've got to tie those into our list of companies. And, and the most obvious way to do that is using the company registration number. Um, and 
thankfully, the H- HMRC have published a list of uh, company registration numbers as well to go with those names, but it's not quite complete. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, just shy of 750,000. This, this is the December release from, sorry, excuse me, the release about December 2020 that came out at the end of February. That's right. So this mm-hmm. may have been updated a little bit with the release of the December and January figures yesterday. But just shy of 750,000 companies, excuse me, claimants Claimants. of the furlough scheme. So they might not all be companies. And 570,000 odd had company reference numbers. Mm -hmm. And those those are not necessarily given by the employer. Actually, speaking to HMRC, they have a matching process that determines that reference number. Sometimes we're not sure they're quite right because they map, for instance, to a dormant company. And you think, goodness me, this dormant company is claiming furlough, you know, a lot of furlough, what's going on? And it turns out that, you know, in reality, that's probably another company within the group. Yep. that's claiming furlough for its for its I think Zizi restaurants was a was a good example of that. Um, that's what I think it's worth saying that so it's internally and I think that we may have mentioned even this before on the podcast that, that internally in HMRC corporation tax number tends to be their spine of identifying um companies. But of course externally that's not available. So we will have company registration number with companies house. And you know you see I think more as as a data sharing agenda within government is is um is gathering pace that problem of not having a kind of universal um, identifier is is becoming an issue, and I think something HMRC uh, are re- recognising some, something we absolutely need to work on. I mean, it's good that HMRC have a matching algorithm. With the remaining claimants, we actually managed to match probably between fifty and sixty thousand more of those. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it's really good that we're moving towards this sort of open data very different from the situation in North America where they're actually moving away from that. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, it needs to be, it needs to be understood that not only the availability of data, but also the quality of data needs to, needs to be good as well. We need to be yeah. able to rely on it. So in that case, I think, I know, and so I think what we were hoping to do um, today was to, we, we Adam's come up with a really um, nice kind of heat map showing the sectors and the regions where um, where fellows mostly claim. So we will make that available um, to to people. I think we're 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 hesitant to really draw any kind of big conclusions from from the data, given the, the quality around it. But I suppose, um, Adam, what would you pick out as your um, a couple of key key takeaways? I think the, the first thing I would say is is that you know. In terms of take up, we can look at take up on a you know on a company by company basis, which is different from HMRC when they release their figures. It's based on payrolls, which mm-hmm. maybe is a slightly better way to do it. But being able to match to companies gives us access access to additional insights. You know how many of those companies are late filing? You know it turns out there's actually quite a lot. You know thousands actually of companies that are filing late uh, while claiming furlough. So they're not they're not meeting their their requirements elsewhere with the government, but they're still content to mm. claim the furlough scheme. Um, I think in terms of sectors, though, we're, we're seeing a broadly similar picture to what HMRC put out. Hospitality and food being hit the most hard or taking furlough up the most by a country mile, really. You know, I mean, the next, you know, our our headline figure, looking at all companies, including mm-hmm. dormant companies, you know, so those caveats are in place, but 42% of all hospitality and food companies claiming furlough yeah. that we've been able to match. The next one is manufacturing at 26%. So that's a really dramatic 
that's a really dramatic uh, gap between mm-hmm. first and second. And Nick, I don't know if you've got anything to say say about the regional figures. Well, I think I think that's most obvious to me from the from, from this wonderful work you've been doing <clears throat> is there's a real north south divide. And if you if you look at the uh, the figures, the regions that are show the highest take up as a percentage of companies um, are in the north, and the lowest take up are in London and the southeast. And you know, Joe quite rightly, um, and, and so did you, Adam pointed out that uh, these numbers are in any case always going to be skewed, the, the geographical breakdown, by the fact that a lot of companies may operate elsewhere in the country, but will have a head office in London. It is that registered office that we use here. Yeah, because That's what else thing. can you do? Because the exactly. data is the only way you get complete data. Yeah. But of course, the point about that is that, you know, you, that would make you think that the London number would be higher but it's not. So the suggestion, you know, the suggestion from that is that the take-up in, in in London in particular, but also the southeast, is remarkably low mm. by comparison with, say, the northeast. Mm-hmm. So there's a real north-south divide here. And I and I think in the light of the government's leveling up um, oh, agenda, agenda, they may that that may inform them a little bit. Mm. Well, who knows? It might have an impact on the Hartlepool by-election at the beginning of May. <laughs> remains to be seen. Watch that, Watch that space. Yeah, I, I, and, and I have to say the this is fantastic data. Um, you know, as, as very much a, a, a data nerd, and 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 I use this sort of information not just on these podcasts, but in all sorts of other campaigns. And this is incredibly useful. What would be even more useful, but uh, is not available, would be a similar list and uh, an ability to match and analyse for the loans taken from the various um, loan schemes. Absolutely. And bear in mind that the um, the amount of money taken through the loan schemes, ticked through 75 billion in the latest numbers, which are almost the last numbers before the scheme finishes at the end of March. Mm. Um, and bearing in mind that um, over a third of all UK companies have taken loans, wouldn't it be useful to know at least which sectors are the most heavily additionally indebted? And, and I say that because not only do we need that data, but you've got to see that need in the context of the fact that the government has extended filing dates for company accounts. So the information in the public domain about the actual borrowers mm. is now getting very seriously out of date. And it's hard because I think that the um there are some there are some like aggregated statistics. So I think you might be able to see in in a constituency level, I, I believe I, I I did look a while ago. I think we 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 were we were trying to kind of get a grip on this, but really you do want to know company by company which companies have, have taken um, under, and we will know it anyway once the once the balance sheets get get filed relating to this um this period but actually the terms around the um the government backed schemes are different and they i think that would have a material impact in you know if you just see a number on a, of debt on on the balance sheet if you know that actually that is mostly or all one of the government schemes that's got a 10-year repayment period, low interest rates and all the rest of it, that's quite a different proposition, isn't it, from having a kind of 10% repayable on demand loan and not and not really being able to get to the bottom of those um of those figures once we get the, the balance sheets, I think will be a be an issue. Yes, and I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a bash on social media at um, um applying some pressure to get the because uh, the British Business Bank has this data. 
Yes, I do. Apparently. British Business it has to, it has to, because the government needs to know what their liability is. So the British Business Bank have got a list of the, the data. And I think there have been some freedom of information requests to try and um, extract the list of uh, companies, but to no avail um, so far. Well worth just making that point that, you know, we want access to this this data. And it's not just so we can go and, you know, victimise the, the companies that have, have had to use these schemes, but it's actually so that we can we can separate the companies that are worth lending to and and are perhaps, you know, um, facing a more difficult, difficult circumstances. And ultimately that will increase the amount of credit in the economy and, and push mm. towards economic growth. So, you know, it, it's for it's for good motives actually that we want to see this you know increase in transparency of data rather than a, a decrease when it comes to extending filing deadlines. And there is a very particular one. One last point. Yeah, I was going to say let's let's, let's wrap up. <laughs> time, time, time is passing. It's particularly relevant this this transparency because the British Chambers of Commerce have just yesterday published. Uh, some research saying that 55% of the companies they surveyed were looking to access additional finance over the next 12 months. And only um, a quarter of those are doing it for investment purposes. The rest is to prop up cash flow. So, you know, the, the credit market needs to know what has gone on for the last yeah. year with these loans, because otherwise these companies won't be able to borrow easily. Because and as we're finding, you know, as, as the insolvency rate um, starts to, to rise, which inevitably it will after um, after June, you know, the the, the appetite for, for taking on risk will change quite considerably as people start really crystallising money that I guess, you know, we're already st- starting to realise that that lots of rent won't be paid and so on. But as that, as those losses crystallise, you know, the, the appetite for, for extending tr- credit will, will really um, reduce. Nick, Adam, Thank you very, very much indeed. Um, it's you, been Jay. really, really um, interesting uh, topics today that we've covered. Um, thanks to everybody for listening. Um, I guess we might have a break for Easter. We haven't really sorted out our, our recording schedule, so it'll be a surprise when we next drop into your um, into your <laughs> podcast feeds. But thanks from all of us. Goodbye. Goodbye.